Today's scripture is the same as last week's, Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right. Good morning, everyone. Albert is still out of town. Actually, I think he's on his way back as we speak from Southern California, and he'll be back with us next Sunday. And we've taken this two-week hiatus through the book of 1 Peter to think about community, and we're going to wrap up that conversation this morning. So let's begin prayer, and then we'll talk about this picture from Max 2 a little bit more. So let's pray. Father God, as always, we're grateful to be together, thankful for this time and this space to gather Thank you for uh, Sylvia and the work that she's doing and the work that you are doing and college students uh, all across the state of California through InterVarsity. And God, we ask now for the ability to pause and to be quiet for a few moments, to listen, to speak to us through your word. Uh, we pray this morning as we sing and read scripture and pray and take communion together, you would be honored and that we would reflect this kind of community, which is your dream for the world and for the redemption of all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there's a great scene in The Lord of the Rings. I promised you last week I wouldn't use any more dated references, but here we are talking about Lord of the Rings to get started, so I apologize. I like to think of Lord of the Rings more as timeless, though, than as dated. So... <laughs> Anyway, there's this great scene in The Lord of the Rings. It's in both the books and the movies where the two central hobbit characters, hobbits are these little men with big feet, and they're the heroes of the story. And these two characters, Frodo and Sam, have an opportunity to reflect on the experience that they're having. And they're wrestling with what has happened to us and what is going on and is this like the stories that we heard when we were growing up and Sam asked the question I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into this is one of the most important spiritual theological questions you can ask I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into what kind of story are we in we're going to come back to this question again and again this morning but let's recap real fast what we talked about last Sunday. If you weren't here, you can always listen to the sermons online. They're on the webpage, and links are up on Facebook and Twitter and all that good stuff. So anytime you want to go back and check that out, you can. But if you were here with us last Sunday, we talked about a couple of things. Namely, the fact that for a lot of us, we've created very unrealistic expectations for community, especially Christian community. And as a result, there are a lot of us who are disappointed because our experience, our, the reality that we've experienced in community hasn't matched those expectations. But we saw that we can move from disappointment to devotion. The key word in this text in Acts 2 is the word devoted. 
And we were able to do this because of what Jesus has done for us, the ways that he has reconciled us to God. And I hope that we left last week reminded that the kingdom of right relationships, and we'll talk more about what that means this morning, but this kingdom of right relationships is worth fighting for. No matter what we've experienced, it is better to do life together. Now, some of us are disillusioned, disappointed with church because we've been wounded and hurt by someone. And again, we spent a lot of time talking about that last Sunday. I don't want to make light of those things. But I think there's also a group of us who have grown disappointed over time, grown disillusioned over time because we're not quite sure. We've lost sight of the story that we're in. We're not sure what kind of tale we've fallen into. So the first question for us this morning is what kind of story are we in? What kind of story are we in? Alan Hirsch, who has written and thought extensively on the state of the Western church, writes, The hunger for community is a legitimate one, but to pursue it for its own sake is a mistake. When we seek to build community without the experience of adventure, all we end up with is the kind of pseudo-community that pervades many churches. It's more like a support group than a communitas. That's our $10 word for the day that we'll talk a little bit more about later on. But the key here is, what kind of story does Hirsch think that we are in? An adventure, an epic tale. And I think one of the reasons we hunger for this Acts 2 community, again, we talked about that last week, right? This sort of deep desire we have when we read this passage for what we see there. It's not because there aren't enough people to get to know. It's not because there aren't enough churches that are doing good things. I think we hunger and thirst for this because we've lost the sense that we're caught up in the most incredible story ever. We're bored and we've lost our sense of adventure. We've lost sight of the bigger story that we're a part of. So I want to spend a few moments thinking about the story that we're in. The story, of course, begins in the book of Genesis, all the way back to the very beginning. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we see this poetic retelling of how God creates the world. God's word brings everything into being. God speaks, and things are created. And there's a rhythm to this, right? And God said, and God said, and God said. Things come to be, and God looks at what he has created, and what does he say? He says, this is good. It is good over and over again. And God said, and it was, and it was good. Now, when the author of Genesis uses this word good repeatedly throughout, particularly the first chapter of Genesis, this isn't God going, that's all right. This is pretty good, right? There's a depth and a richness to this goodness. And it's wrapped up in the Hebrew word shalom. Everybody say shalom. Shalom. Good job. I like that. Now, in the Old Testament, particularly when you're reading through English translations, this word is translated as peace. And that's certainly part of the definition, but peace really just begins to skim the surface of what shalom is all about. It's more than just peace or the absence of conflict. It is this richly layered word describing the flourishing of all creation. It's better to think of shalom as wholeness or well-being or the way that things were intended to be and we have moments I think right in life of sensing the shalom of creation 
for me at this stage of life, it's that moment at the end of the day where the kids are in bed and the toys are put away and the dishes are done and everything's put back and it's right and proper place. And you kind of sit down on the couch and have this deep moment of like, ah. Oh. That lasts for about two minutes and then somebody starts to cry. <laughs> for others of us, we experience shalom in those moments where we're doing the things that we love, whether it's gardening, running, hanging out with your kids, being around good friends, around a table, painting, writing a song, whatever those things are, those moments where we sort of have that deep down intuitive feeling of, oh, this is really good. This moment right here, it's so good. Shalom, again, is about wholeness, integrity, everything in its right and proper place, the way that things were intended to be. It's also a very relational word, and it refers to this idea of right relationship, right relationships in multiple directions. Genesis shows us, reveals to us, that we were created to live in rightly ordered relationship with God, with people, with each other, and then with the rest of creation. Being good 21st century Americans, we may not like the idea of hierarchy, but there is a hierarchy to the created order. God, people, the rest of creation, this web of rightly ordered relationships. Okay, then we get to Genesis chapter 3. And there's a lot to say about the scene that happens in Genesis 3. But at its essence, when Adam and Eve are tempted, what essentially is happening is that the tempter, Satan, the serpent, is questioning the order, questioning the shalom of creation. Did God really say? Is this really how God wanted it to be? And so what Adam and Eve do when they eat the fruit is they violate this Shalom. They put themselves at the center. They elevate creation. They lower God. They reshuffle the order of creation. And the result is just this massive fallout of broken shalom. Adam and Eve no longer live in right relationship with God. As we read through Genesis chapter 3, we see they're cut off from the tree of life and they will die. Adam and Eve no longer live in right relationship with each other. There's this enmity between them. Their offspring will spiral into violence and broken relationships. And then they no longer live in right relationship with creation. They're banished from the garden, this place where they were called to be a part of taking care of it, but things were provided for them and life was sustained. And now they must toil and labor and work and sweat for survival, for sustenance, for food. So shalom has been broken and the world gets crazy over the next several chapters of the book of Genesis. Death, murder, pain, tribalism, factions, war, rape, pillaging, natural disasters. Doesn't sound anything like our world today, right? But then the story shifts focus. Genesis chapter 12, the story which has been operated on this very sort of large level, hones in on a person, on a family. God comes to a man named Abram and says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is shalom language. Blessing. Right relationship. 
So God begins this restoration project, putting Shalom back together by choosing a family, a household, a real live group of people, flesh and blood people, a community. Community that will bring blessing, that will bring flourishing, that will bring the kingdom of right relationships, that will point people towards shalom. Now, you don't have to be a New Testament scholar to know that Abram, who is later called Abraham, fails, that his family fails over and over again. And they have some great moments, of course, but again, we see them fail all throughout the Old Testament. And this is fast-forwarding in the story significantly, but it brings us to Jesus. Jesus spends about 33 years as a real-life flesh-and-blood person teaching and healing and pointing us towards a shalom way of living, and it gets him killed, right? But in his death, he takes on all of our sin, all of our anti-shaloming. That's a technical word that I created this week. And he begins restoring and reordering this web of broken relationships. And several writers in the New Testament attempt to explain this. Here's one shot at it in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near again do you hear the shalom language in that text the kingdom of right relationships breaking down the walls of hostility through Jesus' death and resurrection, hostility between us and God, between each other, between people, and in its place creating something new. Now the story ends, again, massive fast forward here, but we have to go quickly. <laughs> this is how the story ends. Revelation, we read, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. This is Genesis 1 and 2 language references right here. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Shalom, fully restored. So to summarize, the story in four moves is shalom, broken shalom, restored shalom, and one day shalom fully restored. And where we live right now is somewhere in the overlap between broken and restored shalom, where it is possible. It is possible right here, right now, because of what Jesus has done for us through his death and resurrection to experience and participate in this kingdom of right relationships, right relationship with God, with each other, and with the rest of creation. That's the story that we are in, which brings us then back to Acts chapter 2 and this picture that we've been looking at of the first church. This picture that we get here, it's not just really cool idea. It's not just some people getting together and having a good time. This is God's plan for the world. This is his dream. 
God working through real people, broken and sinful people, but redeemed people to help restore shalom. And the author of Acts uses this description in a way to sort of force us to think about the created order of things. First, we see right relationship with God. This community devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They experienced awe and wonder at what God was doing. They worshiped God together. God was rightfully at the center or the top of the hierarchy, however you want to think about that, of all that they did and all that happened. We also see right relationship with people. They devoted themselves to fellowship with each other. They were together. They had all things in common. They met in each other's homes. Because of their right relationship with God, they were free to serve one another and to be together. And then finally, they enjoyed right relationship with the rest of creation. They had a proper understanding of their stuff and their resources. They sold possessions. And they used the proceeds from that to help those who were in need. They didn't hoard and hold on to their stuff. They used it to serve each other and to meet the needs of the community around them. Again, this is the kingdom of right relationships. God's vision of blessing lived out in real time with real people. This community knew what kind of tale they were caught up in. This radical adventure of living out God's dream for the world together. And the amazing thing is, this is how God continues to work. How he continues to bring his kingdom into the world. Not through powerful structures, but through communities of people like us who are pursuing God together, who are devoted to one another, and who are willing to use what they have to serve those around them. Now the final key to this picture is that this community realized they didn't just exist for themselves. The adventure wasn't just about being together. It was what they got to do together. Jesus' final words to his disciples, at least as Matthew describes it, is this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There is a mission for this community. Not just a club to belong to, not just a good place to find friends, not just a community service organization. And those aren't necessarily bad things. In fact, we do many of those things, and we hope we do them well. But if you are a follower of Jesus, your mission is to make more disciples. Now, what does this mean? The most simple definition I can think of is this. Making disciples is just inviting people to participate in this kingdom of right relationships. That's what we're called to do. And then guess what? When this happens, the adventure really takes shape because the community will grow. Community will grow. Acts 2.47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, the goal isn't to grow. All right, A lot of things grow that aren't necessarily reflective of the kingdom of right relationships. But this is also not just a throwaway line here at the end of this text. This is a repeated theme throughout the book of Acts. Acts 4.4, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. Acts 6.1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Acts 6.7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
Acts 9.31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Acts 12.24, the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 16.5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Acts 19.20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This community did not just exist for itself. Last week we talked about how there's this connection between the word devotion and love and that the kind of love that Jesus shows for us is not sort of a mushy, hey, I love you, man, but this very rugged, sacrificial love. This community loved people in this way. It laid its life down for its friends, its neighbors, its enemies, anyone and everyone. Now, here's another really interesting thing about this. Okay, the church grew because the Holy Spirit moved. There's no doubt about that. The church grew because Paul and several other key players pioneered new territories and shared the good news of Jesus with all kinds of different people. But, but most of the nitty-gritty work of disciple-making was done by, quote-unquote, normal people sharing their lives and the good news of Jesus in their homes. And this is another interesting theme to follow through the book of Acts. Acts 2.46, again, this passage we've been thinking about for the last two weeks. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, and the Lord added to their numbers. Acts 5.42, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Acts chapter 16, Paul and his group, they meet a woman named Lydia, who's a successful businesswoman, and they spend some time with her at her shop, and then we read that she and the members of her household were baptized, not just an individual decision, had an impact on her whole house. Later in that same chapter, Paul and Silas are in prison, this great scene where there's an earthquake and the jailer freaks out and they tell the jailer about Jesus. And as a result, he, the jailer, and all his household were baptized. Acts 18, we're introduced to a married couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and they meet a fellow named Apollos, and they have an opportunity to pass on to him what they've learned. Priscilla and Aquila heard him, him referring to Apollos. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Okay, central to the spread of the gospel is the home, is households. This is why I love that we call our small groups here at Regen home groups. I think it reflects what we see in the book of Acts. And so we hope that our home groups are a place for you to experience community, to make friends, to do life together with other people. But home groups are on a mission too. Regen has a front door. You all walked through it this morning when you came in. But that should never be the only front door to our community, the only door to our community. We hope that there are many doors that a person could walk through to belong here and to learn about Jesus. It might be that door. It may be the door to your home on a Tuesday night or a Thursday night whenever your group meets. It might be the door of a cafe or a coffee shop on a Wednesday afternoon. We hope there are many doors that people could walk through to be part of our community. So home groups, do you see that what you do is vital to this mission of God, vital to spreading the good news about Jesus, vital to the restoration 
of shalom in people's lives and in neighborhoods around Oakland. Do you see that? Because you are, you are vital to this mission. Michael Frost, who's another fellow who has thought a lot about the church, writes this. All disciples of Jesus, not just a select few, are called to an ongoing, risky, actional, extravagant way of life. This is the faith that is willing to leap into service of his unfurling reign in this world, believing that we are partnering with him in a cosmic project for the regeneration of all things. Dude stole our name. <laughs> Let me read that last line again. Believing that we are partnering with him, him being Jesus, in a cosmic project for the regeneration of all things. If that doesn't get you pumped up, I'm not really sure what will. When we understand the tale that we are caught up in, the adventure that we are on, it transforms our community. Several years ago, I was an intern at a church down in Salinas, and I was like the college young adult guy, but I was asked to go on the summer high school missions trip down to Mexico to build some houses. And that youth ministry, like probably every youth ministry, struggled with the issue of transportation. How do you get 40 to 50 people down to Mexico safely and back and do it in a way that doesn't bust the budget? Always an adventure. And typically what we would do is we'd get a bunch of vans and we'd go down caravan style. And this is in the days before smartphones and everyone having a GPS in their car. And so someone would get lost, which again is a whole other adventure, getting lost in Mexico. (laughs) But this particular year that I was asked to go down with them, the youth pastor there had discovered a guy in the church who had an old school bus. And this guy had offered to drive it down for just the price of the fuel. And so we're like, this is a brilliant idea. Save money, put all the kids on the bus, bring an extra van along just to run errands or for you know, short trips here and there, and everything will be great. So we leave Salinas, we start driving down, we get on the five, and then we get to the grapevine. Those of you who have driven down the five over the grapevine know this is a very steep hill. And so we're going up and the bus is going slower and slower, which wasn't necessarily concerning. I was actually driving the van behind the bus. And eventually it pulls over, about halfway up the hill it pulls over. And I'm thinking, maybe just to take a break for a minute or something. But as soon as that bus pulls over, that little back emergency door pops open and kids just start streaming off the bus. And I could see smoke starting to come out of some of the windows. And then once all the kids are off the bus and I have a clear shot in, this is an old bus, so the engine's actually inside, like right next to the driver, and he has to pull the hood back like this, right? And he pulls the hood back and there's flames coming out of the engine at that moment where I realized okay this bus is not going to make it to Mexico (laughs) this is not going to happen that was the end of the bus but just the beginning of the adventure so we have to march all these kids up the hill to a McDonald's where we sit outside for several hours where we make phone calls to parents we find a church in the LA area that will let us spend the night there And people start driving down from Salinas in vans, of course, to help us out. We start shuttling the girls first over to the church, which means that the guys were stuck at McDonald's for many, many hours, which means that we started to wrestle. (laughs) Which means that somebody cracked their head open on the sidewalk, which means that we had to go to the hospital. 
Somehow, though, we got everyone to the church down there in L.A. alive, and we spent the night on the floor for a couple of hours, got up early, hit the road, caravan style after all, and made it to Mexico. Now, because of our brilliant plan and the fact that we had so many kids, we decided this particular year to build two houses instead of one. So here we are, tired, exhausted, a day behind schedule with this huge project in front of us. And this sort of feeling of like, what's the next thing that's going to go wrong? And one of the most amazing things that I've ever experienced happened. That group of kids came together. They worked their tails off in the hot sun, put in extra hours, gave up a couple of the fun things that we would normally do on a trip like that. And they got both of those houses built on time. And no one complained. No one complained. And what's really interesting is that when you talk to kids who went on that trip, I still run into people all the time that were a part of that experience. And especially the ones that went on multiple trips with that group, they'll tell you the best year, hands down, was the year the bus caught on fire. (laughs) When I run into people who went on that trip, it always comes up in conversation. Why? Why was that the best year ever? I think it's because it was an adventure. It was risky. It was costly. The stakes were high. And back to our $10 word of the day, I think it's because that group of kids moved from community to communitas. Communitas is a communal phenomenon that forms in the context of adventure, around a common ordeal, a challenge, a task, or in pursuit of a mission. Regen, this is what we were created for. Not to be a social club, but for a grand adventure. Not just to be a community, but to experience communitas. So what will our adventure be like? What will it look like? I have no idea, because I've only been here two months. (laughs) But I do know this. I do know this. It begins with devotion. It begins with devotion to Jesus and to one another. And like we talked about last week, some of us carry wounds and disappointment, and those are very valid things. But we've also sort of kept community at a distance. We've been sitting on the sideline. And so my challenge to you, if you are in that place, is to jump in. Get connected. You will never have communitas by yourself. And then beyond that, my hope is that this vision will begin to infuse all that we do. When we gather here on Sunday, are we just doing church? Or are we participating in God's dream for the world? When we meet during the week in home groups, are we just getting through a study? Or are we making disciples and restoring broken shalom in each other's lives? Do we believe that every time we tutor a kid... Share the good news of Jesus with a neighbor. Help a refugee work on their English skills. Gather here to pray in the early hours on Monday morning. Serve breakfast to one of our homeless friends on Sunday morning across the street. Baptize someone. Serve someone a cup of coffee. Help out with the kids. Go to the Philippines. Whenever we do these things, do we believe, do we know that we are partnering with Jesus in his cosmic project for the regeneration of all things? May we know this to be true. And in doing so, may we move from community to communitas, participating together in God's dream for the world, the restoration of shalom. Let's pray. 
God, we come to you this morning, again, many of us carrying with us wounds and hurt, disappointment from our experiences with people and community. Some of us may be even disappointed because church has grown stale. We've lost sight of this story that we are in. So this morning, I hope we gain sight of that again, that we know the story that we are in is an adventure, that you are at work, that you are moving in the world, and we, in some small way, get to be a part of that with you. You invite us to be a part of that as you restore the broken shalom in our world. Pray that we would be a church that reflects that, that lives that out, and that helps point people back to you by our participation in those things. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.